Here is a very precious principle that every believer holds to. This is the fact that God protects his people. Do you believe that? Do you believe, if you're a Christian, that God protects you? There is a reality that the scriptures teach that God has given us his protection. Passages like Matthew 28 speaks of the fact that God, Jesus, is with us to the end of the age. You've got passages like Psalm 91 that talks about guardian angels. Guardian angels. That's not some myth that is out there that deals with, oh, Sean, you guys need the children's church dismissed? There you go. Children, I'm sorry, you are dismissed the children's church. You, the idea of guardian angels isn't something that is a myth. I believe Psalm 91 teaches it. I think that's what Jesus was um, being used to uh, challenge to call upon when Satan was tempting him in Matthew chapter 4. You've got passages like Hebrews 13 for New Testament saints that talks about the fact that we entertain angels unawares. You think about that reality. That God is sending angels into our lives. And I've said that when we're in heaven one day, if God allows our lives to be played back, won't well, it be interesting to find out that this situation here we were protected because an angel stepped in and that all of a sudden you interacted with an angel. All of us would like to tell a story of how, though, it'd be fun to interact with something miraculous. And I know that it's not the norm. It's not the norm that we're going to be having tons of stories where we believe we've interacted with angels. And yet they occur. I believe I have. I believe, as I've been doing our recent study lately, as I've been going through different accounts, that these, there are situations that just cannot be explained other than the supernatural is involved, and I believe God is involved. Listen to this one. Here's one that I've got from that book that I've been reading. Um, What's the name of it? It's called, Do You Believe in Miracles? And this one comes from a um, Christian who was working in Honduras in a town, I want to say it right, of Lasibia. And the story goes like this. It's, It's told by a man named Howard Foltz, who was the professor of global evangelism um, at Regent University. And the, store, the name of the story is called The Bridge That Wasn't There. And he goes, I have ministered all over the world and heard stories that seem to have no logical explanation outside of God's intervention. One story in particular stands out. And he says, Ben Taylor, a colleague, told me about a trip that he had taken to a church in the mountains above Lasibia. So he's going up here, all right? And these stories that I'm telling you have specific names, specific places. They're not a way that if I was just going to make up a story that couldn't be checked um, are told. These are trying to be historically accurate. So his driver was a man named Tito Rodriguez. He was the national superintendent of churches for a Latin American denomination. It was late in the afternoon and, and Tito had stopped abruptly in the middle of the road saying that he had something to show his passengers. And Ben exited the car and found himself in front of a 30-foot wooden span that crossed a deep chasm. 
Tito said that he had been on this road a month earlier on his way to a preaching engagement, and the weather had been horrible. The region had endured a three-day storm because of the hurricane, and Tito made his trip anyway. And when he arrived at the village, everyone was surprised to see him. They said, how did you get here? How did you get here? And he's like looking at them like, what are you talking about? And they respond, how did you get here? Because the bridge is out. And he comes back and says, what are you talking about? I went over the bridge. I went over the bridge. They said, you can't. The bridge got washed out yesterday. So the rain stops, he does what he do, they go check out the bridge, and guess what? The bridge is gone. He goes, how did I get across? He, how did I get across? Yet, he crossed the chasm safely. He saw when he went across that bridge that the wood was brand new. Now, this isn't some fly-by-night guy. This is a professor of Regent University. This is a, a, a religious superintendent down in Honduras. Do you believe this happened? I do. I do. It's a great story of protection. It's a great story of provision. And there are countless stories like this. But these don't always happen. And some of you might be frustrated because you could be saying, this hasn't happened to me. But yet I want us to be thinking as we're studying the book of Esther, and I would tur- encourage you to turn there now, that's the book of Esther chapter 1, that when we come to the book of Esther, we see God's provision of protection of the Jewish people and of people who I believe are believers in him in the person of Esther. And as we come and we look at this, what we see is how God is providing what I believe is the normal way for him to work. And that is behind the scenes. And one of the things that's so great about studying the book of Esther, I believe it's a literary masterpiece in the fact that when you are all said and done and you read the book of Esther, a story about a girl who becomes queen who saves the Jewish people from a holocaust, a holocaust before Hitler. When you read it and it's all said and done, you say, praise God, and yet... You know, if you've read it intently and you've read specifically, God isn't mentioned one time in the book. What do you mean God isn't mentioned one time? He's not mentioned one time. And you see, I think the way God is always working is just like this. And I think God has given us a story like Esther so that we come and we come to that realization that this is the normal way. Now, God's protection can come out like how he did in Honduras and provides a bridge, or he can come out and work behind the scenes. And what I want you to understand is God's sovereignty over your life and his working in your life is always there when you follow his principles. And what what am I talking about? Well, you know, you didn't read the front page of the newspaper this morning, Pastor Mike thrown in jail because he was robbing a bank yesterday. Pastor Mike got in a fight with his wife and he beat her up and he was thrown into jail. Pastor Mike didn't get drunk and all of a sudden drive off a road and kill a kid or something. The reality of this is all of you can have testimonies and stories every day and say, listen, I followed God's ways today and he protected me. And, and that's God's sovereignty. That's God's hand on our lives. 
where all of a sudden you have an opportunity to do something and maybe a scripture comes to mind and all of a sudden you say, you know, you're right. I'm not going to steal here. I'm not going to lie here. I'm not going to do this wrong thing. You've got to recognize that's God's hand on your life. And, and we've got to be thankful for God's protection. And, and obviously, there's times we mess up and we look for forgiveness. But the reality of it is, is we want to see that God is working in our lives. And I think we're going to see this a little bit as we go th- continue to work through chapter 1 of the book of Esther. We're looking through chapter 1 where it deals with the sin that sets the whole scene. If you're unfamiliar, we're dealing with the fact that we have this king, and his name is Ahasuerus. Look at chapter 1, verse 1, and it says, Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus that Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. And we know, as we've done background material on this, that this is not a fairy tale. This is historically accurate. There really was this king, Ahasuerus. Some of your Bibles has the name Xerxes. And he had a territory. It's on this map here, you can't really see all the little names, because I know it's too small, but right about here is where they are. That's the town of Susa, but this is, at this time, around 485 B.C., and it's the, one of the, at this time, the world's largest kingdom ever in territory size, and this king is over these 127 provinces, and as we read through chapter 1, verses 1 to 9, in our last study on this two weeks ago, is that what we saw is he's throwing this giant banquet. And he's throwing this banquet for 189 days, 180 days, excuse me, with an extra week thrown out. And we studied the history of this, and which is fascinating because God doesn't put it in the book of Esther why the banquet is held, other than the fact he's holding it. But historically, we know. And what was the reason is that King Ahasuerus wants it all. He wants to rule the entire world. He, we know that this banquet, and you see that, we'll pick up in verse 3, it says, In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all the princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, and the nobles and the princes of his province being in his presence. He's giving this banquet because he wants to, he wants to go and conquer the rest of Greece. Greece is becoming this world power. And his father, 10 years earlier, King Ahasuerus, has tried to go in to fight, and he's lost. And basically, he comes back a defeated, humbled king. And now his son is saying, listen, we have to, be, we have to go back, and i got to win for my dad. And he's throwing this banquet, and we believe as he's bringing in all the different leaders from this entire area, he's bringing them in in sections, so he's trying to get them all on board, and he's trying to get them to understand how powerful he is. And we went into a very detailed study of this, these verses 1 through 9, and then tied it into a study of pride, because King Ahasuerus is very prideful. And what we're doing over the, these three weeks of studying chapter one, we were, we've already done study one, this is study two, next week will be study three, is I want us to look at this story of Esther and, and see how God is teaching us through it. And pride goes before fall. And 
Pride brings, I believe, Ahasuerus down. He's going to lose. He's going to end up in 20 years being killed by his people because he loses this battle. And it's, it's, it's all part and parcel of his entire character that also leads him to kick out his wife. So here we are now as we come to verse 10. So he's having this banquet. He's trying to promote how great he is. And now what we're going to get to is this. We're going to look at how drunkenness and anger plays a part in this entire story. And my hope and my goal is that when you are done with this study of chapter one, you're going to realize, wow, I really understand the foundation of this book. But I also believe it's a way that God is also teaching us how pride can bring us down and now how drunkenness can bring us down. Look at verse 10. So it, it, it says, on the seventh day, you know, he's thrown an additional banquet. He's got a 180-day banquet, and then he throws a seven-day banquet. And on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was, what, merry with wine. Now, that's key. That is a line that's talking about the fact that this guy's been drinking for seven days, and the king has gotten himself drunk. He commanded uh, Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagatha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king Ahasuerus, he, to bring in Queen Vashti before the king. Now, why does he mention all seven of these eunuchs? Now, I can do a study at this point, and I can talk about the fact that, you know, let's, let, we go into detail, a eunuch was somebody that... Um, could have been castrated so they wouldn't have sexual act, be able to have sexual activity. And so king would put these kind of men in charge of his harem, right? Makes, makes sense, right? Because the king isn't going to be able to always watch over all these wives he, he has. Why, though, does he bring in the, all the names? This author, and if you haven't been with us, we don't know who the author is of the book of Esther. But he, this book does, I believe, go out relatively soon after the, the story ends, I believe it's so that people would say, yeah, I know who these people are. I know who these seven people are. Historically, we haven't found detailed names yet. But for the time being, I believe when it was written, it would have helped. It would have known. Now, we see in verse 11, Queen Vashti was, brought before, was asked to bring brought before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and princes, for she was beautiful. Okay, no big deal. Bring the queen in. Well, we do have extra-biblical writing, and that extra-biblical writing basically says that the Jews wrote on the fact that he asked her to come in naked, just wearing a crown. Now, we don't know if that's accurate or not. It could have been she was just, hey, there's a bunch of drunks, they're asking me to pray in front of them. I want nothing to do with it. That alone could have been the issue. Scripture doesn't give the reason. And maybe the author does this because he doesn't want to embarrass the king any more than he has to, or the queen any more than he has to. He doesn't bring up the war with the Greeks, I believe, because he wants this book to be circulated through Persia so it doesn't get the Persians upset. So... I do think there are cause as to why certain things are left out. But like I said, historians, Jewish historians who have written on this have said that 
the reason she refuses is because of how he wants her clothed, i.e. unclothed. So, verse 11, to bring Queen Vashti in before the king of a royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry, and his wrath burned with him. And what happens here? What happens here is basically is that what we see is that she says no. And now he gets so angry. And I can just tell you, because we're going to get into it next week, but the story basically is, is that he blows his top, and he basically banishes his wife. This is a woman that he had children with. We know this because one of the children from this queen, it is believed, becomes the next king after he gets murdered. His son takes over. We also know that when we come to chapter 2, look at chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the anger of the king Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed against her. And basically, it was like, what have I done? And the idea is, with this whole understanding of the Persian laws, that he wasn't able to bring her back. Whatever got decreed, got decreed. And that's going to play a story. And when he makes the decree to kill all the Jews, he can't stop it. And you say, this is asinine. And I think, yeah, it is. It's crazy that they had rules like that. But part of the the human fall and human government, no government is perfect, they had a rule that was really idiotic. A king makes a decision, it can't be pulled back. So he got angry. So as I was thinking about this and I was going through this, I was thinking to myself, how does this help us? Because I want to look at the story and I want us to understand it, but I don't want to just rush through it. And what I wanted to talk about today was how drunkenness and anger turns the entire event. And, and I want us to think about these two, negative, these two negative characteristics today. I realize I could do a six-month series on drunkenness. And I could do a series on anger. And I don't believe that's an exaggeration. The big story here is king gets drunk, king gets angry. He's an angry drunk. And as the story progresses, we see the king, he's merry with wine, meaning he's drunk. But not only is he drunk, but he's angry. And an angry drunk makes many bad decisions. The the Bible tells us in Ephesians 5 not to get drunk. And Proverbs warns against drunkenness, and we're going to look at those passages. But sadly, too many of us know firsthand what it's like to deal with an angry drunk. And I I want us to talk about this because I think it's important, especially in our culture where drunkenness is laughed at and it's comically treated. So we went through these verses, and, and how does all of this turn Well, Warren Wiersbe writes this, and I thought this was really good in his commentary. He goes, as you study the book of Esther, you will discover that this mighty monarch could control everything but himself. His advisors easily influenced him. He made impetuous decisions that he later regretted, and when he didn't get his own way, he became angry. Susceptible to flattery, he was a mastery of a mighty emperor, but not master of himself. The Bible tells us, Wiersbe says, he was slow to anger is, is better than the mighty. And he who rules the spirit than he who captures the city, as Proverbs 16, 32. 
Ahasuerus built a great citadel at Susa, but he couldn't build his own character. And as Proverbs says, whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. The king could control neither his temper nor his thirst. This is a good place to stop and consider alcohol, Wearsby said. And that's what prompted me to say, yeah, let's do a study on that. So this is, he says, this is a good place to stop and consider alcohol and anger, two powerful forces that have brought more destruction to our society than even statistics reveal. While we appreciate the king's wisdom in not forcing his guests to drink, as he says in, back in verse 8, we can hardly compliment him on the bad example he sets by his own, on his own drinking habits. The Bible doesn't command total abstinence, but it does emphasize, but it does emphasize that the, it does emphasize it. Wearsby goes on to say, most of the advertisements that we have in our culture today promote the sale of alcoholic beverages, depicting fashionable people in gracious settings, giving the subtle impression that social drinking and success are synonymous. But pastors, social workers, physicians, and dedicated members of Alcoholics Anonymous would paint a different picture. They've seen firsthand the wrecked marriages, ruined bodies and minds, abused families, and shattered careers that often accompany what people call social drinking. Longtime baseball guy for our baseball day today, Connie Mack, said that alcohol had no more place in the human body than sand had in the gas tank of an automobile. Alcohol is a narcotic, not a food. It destroys, not nourishes, and the Bible warns against drunkenness. Wearsby goes on to say, as for the anger that King Ahasuerus expressed toward his lovely queen, it was ignorant, childless, and completely uncalled for. And I wanted to make this point because the reality is sometimes people can look at chapter 1 where the king refuses and, and his wise men come up and say, you know, oh my goodness, if you don't punish her, all the wives throughout the kingdom are going to think that they can rule over their husbands. Like, what a crock. What a bunch of just lies. And, and the reality of it is, is he was an ignorant, childless, child, childlike, totally uncalled for man who wasn't sober, who made an impetuous decision, banishes his wife, and now can't get it back. And the reality of it is Vashti was right. The wife in this situation wasn't going to put herself in an improper situation. But his anger was only further proof that he was wrong. And anger has a way of blinding our eyes and, and blinding our hearts to that which is good and noble. There was an Italian poet named Pietro Alatino who lived from 1492 to 1557 who wrote to a friend, angry men are blind and foolish. For reason as such a time take flight and in her absence wrath plunders all the riches of the intellect while the judgment remains the prisoner of its own pride. If anybody has a prisoner of pride, it was the existing king of the Persian Empire. That's King Ahasuerus. Pride feeds anger, and as it grows, anger reinforces pride. It's a circle, a cycle, goes back and forth. A quick-tempered man acts foolishly, warned the writer of Proverbs, a text perfectly illustrated by King Ahasuerus. Instead of being angry at at Vashti, his queen, the king should have been angry at himself for acting so foolishly. So let's understand, what does the Bible say? The Bible talks about the fact that it doesn't like drunkenness. And dealing with an angry drunk can be anguishing, hurtful, painful. And some of you have got your own personal stories. We'll talk a little bit more about that. 
But first, let's understand, and I hope you can see these verses. If anybody wants these, I'll send this out to this slide to you. But what I wanted to talk about, what does the Bible say? Like Proverbs 20, verse 1 says this, Wine is a mocker and beer a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. Drinking leads to fights and so many bad decisions. I grew up in a home where we, where we, didn't, have Christ, we didn't have a Christian family. And we'd go to Christian functions. And, and there were so many times, no, not Christian functions. We'd go to, we'd go to, we would go to events and drinking just took over. And the fights that broke out, it just made it so horrible. I drive up and down Calumet Avenue and I go by the bars four or five times a week. And I'll see when the windows are broken out of a bar or the door is broken. There's a bar down at the corner, um, more towards 175th Street. Its door has been um, boarded up for over a month now. Why? Because a fight breaks out. You read the newspaper about how fights break out and someone gets shot at a bar, at a party. People were drinking. Listen to that proverb. Wine is a mocker, beer a brawler. It leads to fighting. So many family fights come out of people who have been drinking. Ephesians 5.18 tells us don't get drunk on wine. We're going to talk about the fact that, you know, I, I recognize that God allows drinking. You hear that? He does allow it, but he is very clear. Don't get drunk. So you've got to know your limits. Dr- do not get drunk on wine, which leads to the debauchery. Bo- Think about this. It leads to the debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And if you're finding yourself drinking and getting drunk, then you better just stop because you can't handle it. Zero for you. If you're able to drink and you're not getting drunk, I'm going to say this, fine. I do believe the wine that Jesus turned, uh, the water that Jesus turned to wine in John chapter 2 was alcoholic. And, 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 and I've dealt a lot with this over the years of trying to think, you know, the American church always pushes abstinence. And, and I would love for it to be abstinence. But the reality of it is, and especially with me just recently being in Europe, there's a lot of just social drinking, and people can't handle it. But if you find that you can't handle it, then don't drink at all. Because so much bad comes out of being drunk. Romans 13, I put, I did have the Ephesians passage up here, the Ephesians passage. But this passage here is very important. Romans 13, 13 to 34 says this. Let us behave properly in the day. That's this day that we live. Let us behave properly in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Listen, when I went to college, it was like party time. Get people drunk, and they did all kinds of immoral activity. So much comes out of that. So much that is improper. So many things where people woke up the next morning embarrassed. Verse 14 says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust, its desires. And yeah, we'd all like to feel good and have good times. But if you're not able to handle your drinking and you're finding yourself getting drunk and doing bad things, why would you want to participate in that? This part here, I, I want you to listen. I found this website, and I'll send this out to you. It's from independentbaptist.com. 75 reasons God is against alcohol. And it's really more against drunkenness. I'm going to read you a series of passages, and I just want, to, want you to hear the overwhelming flow of stupidity that happens when people get drunk. Okay? 
In Genesis chapter 9, so there, there's 75 passages that that website gives. And out of those 75, website, uh, 75 verses, you get all these verses that deal with some of those that are up there, but you get a list of activity that were just caused incredible problems. So Genesis chapter 9, Noah becomes drunk, and the results is immorality and family trouble. Genesis 19, Lot gets so drunk, he doesn't know what he was doing, and it led to immorality. Sex with his own daughters. Deuteronomy 21.20, a drunken son was, son was stubborn and rebellious. Deuteronomy 32, intoxicating wine, God warns, is like the poison of serpents. Like a, a serpent that would bite you and, and bring death to you. In 1 Samuel 25, Nabal dies after getting, going on a drunken spree. 2 Samuel 11, by getting Uriah drunk, King David wanted to cover his sin. In 2 Samuel 13, Amon was so drunk, he got, it ended up causing him to be killed. 1 Kings chapter 16, 18 to 10, the king was drinking himself in the drunkenness and he gets assassinated. In 1 Kings 20, Ben-Hadad and 32 other kings were drinking when they were attacked and defeated by the Israelites because they weren't able to guard, protect themselves. And then obviously the story of Esther here, this king gets so drunk that basically he makes an impetuous decision. Listen, if, if I could go on then and give personal illustrations and I know many of you could, illustrations about how drunkenness has impacted you and how you've been scarred for life, I bet you we could go on for hours here in this service. I want to give illustrations of how in drunk, in drunkenness in, impacts people, and I'm just going to speak for many of you. If you have a spouse and you realize you have a drunk for a spouse, you love that spouse, but when they don't come home after work, you know where they are. And if they are 10 minutes late on an ordinary day, you begin to get all tense. You don't understand what it's like to be a child and to go through that day after day after day. Dad's not home. He's 10 minutes late. And you're wondering where he is. And you know what it means. If they come home 15 minutes late, they had an, an, maybe had an errand to, to do. Your heart races with joy. Oh, my goodness. Dad's home. Mom's home. But you can't tell them how worried you were because you, because you might trigger anger in them because they don't want you to tell them how proud you are that they didn't get drunk that night because they're prideful. But when they don't come home and it's now 10 p.m., you worry, you love them, you wonder if you should go get them. But when you do go get them, they're angry. Why are you trying to bring me home? Why, who are you to watch over me? Then they verbally abuse you. When they do get home, it's this vicious cycle. You never know if they're going to be coming home and just going to bed and sleeping, which you just hope more than anything. And you just sleep in your bed and you wonder, can they just go to bed and not destroy things, not scream, not break, not fight, not beat mom? Why do we think that drinking has any good? For those of you who don't understand what I am talking from personal experience and why sometimes I get so upset with alcohol is because I have lived it and I hate it. I can't tell you what it's like night after night after night to deal with a drunk. If you deal with drinking and you are someone that's pulled in it, please stop. You are killing everyone around you and for life the scars that you are putting on them. If you have repented and you stop, praise God. 
When you deal with a drunken spouse, a drunken father, you learn to lie to your friends about where your husband is, where your dad is, how things got broke, why your car was in another accident, why the police dad brought dad home again. This can happen once a week, once a month, a few times. As a child, you realize how this impacts you as, a, as, a, as an adult. If you are wise, you learn to despise drinking. If, like I said, if you can balance it, great, great. How do you deal with drunkenness? I put these verses up here. Look, don't get drunk. Walk in the Spirit. Enjoy the fruit of the Spirit. If you need to, if Romans chapter 13 talks about abstaining. Put on better habits. Colossians is, t- we don't just stop doing something. We focus on other habits. And if you are going to drink, learn how to limit it. And 1 Corinthians talks about the fact that bad company corrupts good morals. If you've got friends that want to constantly take you out drinking and getting drunk, get rid of them because they're not your friends. So when we take this then and you put it with anger, it makes it all the worse because Proverbs talks about anger. And yes, there is righteous anger. And this isn't a full study on anger. Because there are things that sometimes in which we look and we say, yeah, you know, I, I can recognize there are times I should be upset. But listen, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger calms a dispute. And, it, and that's what Proverbs warns about. Proverbs 16.32 says, he is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And this is when I'm pushed and pushed and pushed. I wish I could be stronger. But I'm telling you, it's a goal to be strong. Because if you can control anger, and all of us at times deal with anger, and all of us sometimes have to go to people and say, forgive me, I've gotten angry. And anger isn't the problem. Losing it is, and doing bad things in that, which the king did. And then you have Proverbs 22 that says, don't associate with with a man given to anger. And as I've had to deal with someone in life, in a family situation that's angry, I can see how often that has influenced me. It's bad. It's bad. Don't go with a hot-tempered man, Proverbs says. Matthew 5.22 is another passage. And Jesus says, Everyone that's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you're good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Because when you get so angry, you want to kill someone. And we have road rage, and people get so angry that sometimes they do try to drive another um, rider off the road. And Colossians 3.8 talks about the fact that that you are to put aside anger, wrath, and malice. If you see yourself, and this is what my goal is to try to say, I don't want to be angry. So practical tips is refrain from it. Again, walk in the spirit. Put on those godly habits. Work to resolve things, especially like in a marriage. The Bible talks about going, not going to bed angry. And even if somehow you're separated from your spouse, in the sense where you're both going to bed, make, you make the decision, I'm not going to be angry. And just always remember this, whether you've been someone that's been dealing with your own drinking, your own anger, God forgives. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We must always remember in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We bear with one another and forgive each other, whoever's to complain against another, just as the Lord forgave you. And it's important that we're always forgiving. You know, 
I want us to be a church that supports one another, loves one another, knows that we're going to fail one another. You know, I'm on Italy time, so forgive me, at 4 o'clock in the morning, I was reading the sports page this morning. And one of the things I was reading it was what, there was a pitcher from the Chicago White Sox who has gone and played for now the Cleveland Guardians. And he said, you know, the biggest difference between the two teams is the love and support I feel from this Cleveland team. It's so different than the other organization. He goes, whenever you're with an organization and they're there and they support you and they've got your back, even when there's differences, they've got your back, you feel it. That's what I want for our church. That's what I want for our families. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Now, as we go through these verses in the sense that we're supposed to be forgiving, the reality of it is if somebody is still getting drunk and they're still getting angry and they're still causing so much problems, you still hold them to a standard and, 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 and you expect them to change their behavior. We do not accept angry, drunken behavior. It's totally unacceptable. When, and, and just so I'm clear, again, I recognize there are cultures around the world they regularly drink wine. They're not getting drunk all the time. And if you're someone that's going to tell me, Mike, I like to have a beer every once in a while. Mike, I like to have a glass of wine at night. I'm not going to say that you're in sin. But we know, we know that it can get out of control. And if it gets out of control in your life, stop it. Look, we know that God protects us as believers. And we would all love stories that a bridge appears out of nowhere. I would love for that to happen. I wish that every Sunday we can come up and talk. You can't believe the way God did this miraculous thing this week. But I can tell you every week that I follow God's ways and you follow God's ways. God has sovereignly been protecting you. He's been involved in your life. And, and I would rather have a lifetime of quiet and peace because I have followed God's ways and not had to deal with angry drunks than people who are partying and getting high and having all this kind of fun. You can live out the blessed life every day when God protects you. And I believe God's word protects us. So we come to this story, a story that you can easily sweep through chapter one, and you read this about King Ahasuerus, and you, you can easily have missed. Everything is building. He's so prideful, and then he gets drunk, and then he gets angry, and then he banishes his wife, and then he ruins his family. We get up here, he got angry, he got drunk, he wrecked the car, he lost his job, he ruined his family. She got angry, she got drunk, she had an affair, she woke up where she shouldn't have been. It just goes on and on and on. Listen, don't be a drunk, don't be angry, and if you find yourself today saying, you know what, this is where I'm at, turn to God and repent, because God does forgive. And I can tell you in your family, that other members of your family are just crying to forgive you, crying to get you to be the right kind of person. They want you to not be the angry drunk. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you've given us a story that we shouldn't miss the aspects of what drinking has played a part in and what your word has so much to say about drinking and getting drunk. So I'm hoping, God, there are people here that I know are social drinkers. And I hope, God, that they can always handle it. And I hope they never slip. And one day they take too much and they make decisions that they regret. 
But there are people who have a drinking problem in our congregation. And I'm hoping that today has been a good warning to them and a way to strengthen them, for them to understand the pain they cause. And it causes something in them if they're, as they're born again to have this resolve to never drink again. They can do that, God. And as a congregation, we may not all know your names, and some of you are secret drinkers. We cry out right now to God for you because we love you and we care for you, and we hope more than anything that today is a day of resolution that you never turn to drinking again. Now, for those who have dealt with drunks, it's just a good reminder to us that this world is a fallen world, and there's much pain. My brother-in-law got killed by a drunk driver. Yes, I hate drunk, get people getting drunk. It's painful, and sometimes the consequences are irreversible. But now we have people who are adults, God, and they've dealt with parents, and their, their youth was filled with nothing but alcohol problems. Help them, God, to overcome it. Help them not also to not become judgmental to other people who do drink so that we don't become a legalistic church. But at the same time, help them to, to, to promote and talk to people about how Christ can overcome this horrible, wicked action of getting drunk and then being the angry drunk. We thank you, Lord, for Christ who came to redeem us, to bring resolution to our families. How I pray that today's message greatly strengthens them. In Jesus' name, amen.